Okay, great to see a big group here today. Why don't we begin together with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, your Son Jesus Christ was obedient to you, even unto death on the cross. Therefore, he has been raised up, and in his name, all things in heaven and on earth will bend the knee. We ask that in our own discipline of Lent, Our own wills may be softened so that we may be constantly obedient and open to your will, that we may find salvation in perfect conformity to what you desire. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so before I jump in, uh, today I I am going to talk about obedience. And uh, this is certainly the, the most difficult vow that uh, monks take, or any religious, all religious take vows of obedience, as you know, Uh, and it's one of the more difficult to put into practice for oblates as well, so uh, it's important for us to reflect on this. But before we do, uh, there were a couple of things that I thought we should cover. Uh, The first thing is that um, I think Father Edward's been in touch with you about the, this cross stitch we have, uh, which uh, I find pretty remarkable. Um, and uh, we're, we're, it's going to be here until Divine Mercy Sunday. We're opening the church just about every afternoon from 2 o'clock until 6 o'clock. And uh, if there are those of you who are available and, and willing, we could use help in um, uh, just keeping an eye on the church so that we can leave it open. Anything else you'd like to say about that, or any pitch you'd like to toss? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just an update on a few things I've been uh, asking your prayers on. Uh, Father Francis, as I'm sure you can see, is recovering pretty well. Uh, He's two weeks on from his open-heart surgery. Uh, As often happens, uh, he's had various complications and other procedures that have followed upon it. Uh, But everything seems to be going fine. Uh, Praise God. Uh, Our brother Augustine uh, caught pneumonia two weeks ago. Uh, he is apparently on the mend as well, uh, but he, he needed four days more or less in bed uh, this past week to recover. Uh, I think there, there's been a bug going through Chicago. I don't know if that's true in other places, but uh, um, I heard from uh, our guest who's here from Columbus, Ohio, and he said, yeah, the, the winter hasn't been cold enough to kill off all the germs, you know. So uh, he teaches at a university, and uh, universities like monasteries have lots of people in sort of you know, close quarters, and so when somebody gets sick, everybody gets sick. So we're all kind of just pulling through that. Uh, were there any other intentions, though, you would like us to pray for?
ways. So we ask that our Lord will carry these intentions to the Father, and we will move to our topic for today, uh, which is obedience. Uh, Thomas Merton uh, said something, I'm going to have to paraphrase, I've never, I haven't been able to find this quote since I read it many years ago. But he was talking about the traditional evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. He said, you know, poverty isn't really such a problem. You, know, you can get used to that. Uh, chastity, well, that's some work, right? That, that's uh, it's not easy. It's obedience that's just the, the, the bear, you know. It's what, it's what's really, really difficult uh, to live by somebody else's designs all the time and, and not one's own. Uh, now, the monastic vows that we take uh, are slightly different than the evangelical councils, though they encompass them. So we have uh, conversatio morum, or live the way of life of a monk. And then we have stability and obedience. And so it's there. And it's a big deal for St. Benedict. It's also one of the chapters of his spiritual teaching at the beginning of the rule. So chapter 4, we have the tools for good works. And then we have restraint of speech. And then we have obedience, and it's followed by humility. So those are the, the spiritual doctrinal chapters of the rule. The rest of the rule is more practical, uh, giving instructions on how to live as monks. Uh, so obedience is obviously uh, a practice that the early Christians and the tradition places before us is particularly important to pay attention to. One way we can look at this is through uh, Merton's lens, which is that uh, it's emphasized because of its difficulty. But what I'm going to offer you to you today is also the idea that humility is given to us as important because it's precisely what Christ models for us and it's what saves us. So at the beginning of the prologue, St. Benedict says, you know, we're going to return to God by obedience, uh, because we've fallen away from him through the sloth of disobedience. If we think about all the difficulties we have in life, um, they go back, according to biblical theology, to an initial transgression by our, our first parents, Adam and Eve. So uh, the, their failure to obey God's directive not to eat the fruit of the tree uh, is what is sort of the mythological foundation for all of the, the disorder in the world. And so it's by undoing that act of disobedience that the world is repaired and restored to communion with God. Now, in the monastic triad of vows, so uh, as I mentioned, we do take a vows to be, of obedience, but as well we take vows of uh, conversion of life and stability. Stability, in some ways, adds to the, the difficulty of obedience. Why is that? Uh, in, in most religious orders, uh, obedience is it's to one superior, but the superiors are often changing. So provincials, for example, uh, are major superiors, and uh, they all, almost always have terms. Right? They, have, they serve for five or six years, maybe ten years, maybe twelve um, but then somebody else is elected, and, and uh, so one possibility, this isn't very edifying, but it's very human, 
uh, is, you know, to wait out. If, if there's somebody who gives you orders that you don't like, you just hang in there and somebody else later will come along and hopefully you might even get to vote for the person uh, who will offer an easier time of obedience. Uh, but in a monastery, uh, in our congregation at least, we don't have term limits. So once someone's elected an abbot, he's abbot till he's 75 or, or unless he dies first. Okay? So for instance, my former abbot, Abbot Philip Lawrence, out of Christ in the Desert, he's been superior for about 40 years at this point. And were I to be elected abbot when we become an abbey, uh, and if I were still prior at that point, and if I survive to age 75, uh, I will end up serving as superior for 40 years. Uh, and so the brothers under me have to f- figure out a way to get used to the things I ask them to do. Um, that's, that's how it is. Now, sometimes this reality can scandalize people, you know. Um, what if you get a terrible abbot, you know? What happens then? Well, this, this sort of thing does happen. Life is... In many ways, no different in the monastery than out. There are some stellar examples of leadership and less than stellar examples. Um, but let's look at it this way. If we believe in the permanence of marriage, spouses must practice mutual obedience for life. Right? There isn't even a 75 cutoff there. <laughs> right? uh, so, uh, so one has to learn how to be open to a, a, another human being. And I think this is one advantage of the monastic way of doing things. It's, it's not just a procedural, uh, structural thing. There has to be somebody in charge. But it really is about a, a person. You know, when someone's elected abbot, that person, his personality is going to put a stamp on the community, and each brother is going to have to relate to him, and he has to relate to each brother, person to person. Um, and I, again, I think you all are aware if, if you're in a, a, a large, working in a large company, one has to obey one's superiors in the work uh, area. But there, there are ways to kind of avoid the sort of personal sharing. In a monastery, that's almost impossible. And if, it's, if you are avoiding it, it's, it's a problem. And so it's, as I say, it's not... It isn't lacking for analogies with a marriage. Uh, The point is to give myself over to another human being and to receive from another human being part of my identity, the way I act, the things I value. Uh, And in this kind of communio that exists then in a monastery, we are modeling the communion of the Holy Trinity. And that's where I want to start in talking theologically about obedience, because our model for obedience is always Jesus Christ. And he's obedient to his Father. And that's a very powerful relationship, Father and Son. Right? So uh, it's, it's not, again, just a functional thing. It's not, let's see, I have a job to do. Who am I going to... Who would be best for it? It's uh, the Father caring about his creation, grieving for our fall, the son sharing that grief, and the two of them deciding to do something about it together. The father sending the son, and the son deciding to say yes, and they cooperate, and 
we are saved as a result because of their, their mutual love and their mutual concern. The fact that they value the same things together. So, so let me lay the groundwork for you in terms of what obedience is and what its fruits are. And hopefully then we'll have incentive to practice it. And then time permitting, we can discuss how to understand obedience in the world uh, where you don't have a religious superior and, and uh, the situations that you would have in the world as oblates uh, are more spiritually ambiguous as a result. So for instance, if, if a religious superior tells you to do something, even if it's nonsensical, as long as it's not contrary to God's law, you just have to do it. And not only that, you can be confident that God wants you to do it. Right? So obeying one's superior is, is obeying God. Uh, obeying one's boss in the workplace doesn't have that theological connotation. Okay? So, so uh, you know, it requires discernment when we go out into the world. We can't make the same strong assumption about obedience in certain areas of our lives. It has to be done with discernment. Uh, so, let me note, first of all, two, two things. Um, oh, I, before I do that, just the spiritual ambiguity, you know, uh, we're bound to obey the laws of, of the state. Uh, that's, St. Paul says that. Our Lord indicates as much when he talks about taxes and so on. Um, but we're not bound to obey an unjust law. That's actually the, the teaching of Thomas Aquinas and others. Whether we can determine it, that it's an unjust law is a different thing. But uh, again, the state's jurisdiction over us just can't contravene God's law. Okay, so we can't be forced to do something against God's law just because the authorities tell us to. So that's something, as Christians, we always need to be alert to. Uh, it's often a formula for martyrdom, uh, but that's uh, certainly a good part of our history. So, two things about obedience. First, that we are saved by obedience. We are saved by Christ's obedience, and then by our conformity to his example of obedience. Second, uh, that even without an act of monastic oblation, uh, each of you as a Christian has vowed obedience to God. In baptism, okay. So that's what baptism is about. Uh, when Saint Paul, at the beginning of the letter to the Romans, says uh, that he has been commissioned to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations, he's talking about baptism. Okay, so he's saying, uh, just as the, all the disciples were sent to go out to all the nations and baptize, uh, and what baptism does is it brings us into the body of Christ, it makes us members of Christ, it conforms us to his, to his obedience. Uh, and as I'll say in a moment, it's also, in a negative sense, a renunciation of obedience to anybody else, any, any rivals, mainly the devil, right? So, uh, so we shouldn't think of monastic obedience uh, or, or even spousal obedience as sort of over and above what is asked of every Christian. These states, monastic uh, profession and marriage, provide a certain clarity about God's will. Okay, so uh, 
when, as I'm running out the door and my spouse says, be sure to pick up coffee at the store, <laughs> you know, uh, that is, uh, that doing that is particularly meritorious as obedience to one's spouse because of the, what the marriage bond is and, and the unity that comes about from a willing giving of my will to a spouse. Uh, and again, that, that kind of strength doesn't exist in other relationships because they're, it's, they're not sacramental. Okay, But uh, monastic profession has a, a sacramental character to it again, and therefore obedience to one's superior is, has that kind of strength to it. Uh, but obedience is something that's asked of every Christian, even if one doesn't have a spouse or a religious superior. So uh, what those provide is a fixity of relationship that makes it easier to discern what God is asking of me so that I can obey him. So we should not forget that at baptism and at the Easter Vigil, uh, we'll renew these promises. Uh, at our baptisms, we forswore any allegiance to any rival king to God. Uh, in renouncing the devil and all his works, we are pledging to do battle against temptation, and that is temptation to act wrongly against God's commandments, uh, both in terms of the positive law, the, the, ob the commandments that are in the Bible, you know, uh, you shall not kill, you shall not uh, swear falsely, etc. Uh, but also if we discern with moral seriousness, what we think God is asking us to do in our lives, uh, then, then we really should do that. Okay, so also God's personal call to each of us. And uh, what I hope to get to at the end is how to talk about discernment in that, at least in a, in a, a small way. We can't go into a lot of detail with that today. So, uh, first of all, Christ became obedient even unto death on a cross. So even though he was in the form of God, he did not grasp for divinity, as did Adam and Eve. And so St. Paul, in uh, his letter to the Philippians in the second chapter, he sets up a crucial contrast between Jesus and, and Adam. And then the fathers uh, read into this a, a distinction or a an analogy between Eve and Mary. So just as Adam and Eve disobeyed and brought death into the world, we have with the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation and her son Jesus Christ, uh, both of them listen to the word of the Lord, cherish it, and put it into action. And so just, just as uh, Eve... Uh, went against the commandment uh, not to eat. Mary heard the voice of the Lord spoken through Gabriel and conceived the Savior of the world by that disposition of obedience. You know, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your will. Right? So Mary's obedience undoes Eve's disobedience. Christ's obedience undoes Adam's disobedience. Now, it's important to recognize that, that Christ is obedient from the very beginning of his life, uh, even though Paul is emphasizing this particular episode uh, where Christ is obedient 
unto the cross. So he's obedient to the Father's will in such a way that brings him to this particularly uh, ignominious death by the world's standards. Uh, He is conformed to the Father's will at every moment. And so in the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter, he says that it's actually his food to do God's will. Right? So uh, in saying this to his disciples, he is paraphrasing an important teaching from Deuteronomy that we heard last week in the Gospel. Right? That, That we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And so by listening to God's word, embodying it, putting it into action, uh, this is more important than eating. <laughs> right? this, this, uh, just as eating sustains our, our physical life, obedience sustains and nourishes our spiritual life. And so there's, there's no real spiritual life without an attempt to obey God. And, and so to discern what it is that God's asking me to do each day and then put it into action. So... Obedience is our lifeline, and, uh, and we, we start to wither away and dry up when we aren't obeying God spiritually. Our, our, our bodily life can go on quite, quite nicely, even under those circumstances. Now, uh, one thing I'd like to mention uh, here is a, a slightly problematic understanding of obedience that has cropped up in the modern world. When I say modern world, I mean maybe the last two or three hundred years or so. And it's uh, the idea of blind obedience. When I was a novice, I read uh, a very pious book. Uh, I I won't mention the title because it's largely a good book, I'd say. But uh, in it, there was a section on obedience, and it went something like this. The wonderful thing about making monastic profession is you never have to make a decision again. You know, if, if you just do what your superior says, uh, if, if he orders you to do anything that's wrong, it's his fault, you know. And uh, God will, will see the merits of your desire to obey. It's not important for you to understand why he's asking you to do this and so on. And um, uh, this, so this idea of blind obedience, there's something very clean and neat about it. Um, and certainly... Uh, it could be tempting if one suffers from uh, decision anxiety, which a lot of young people do today. Uh, you know, um, I, I often think of Father Edward's famous homily from many years ago, the, the 47 choices you have for breakfast <laughs> if you go to the diner. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, 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 just, I'll have eggs and bacon. Uh, what kind of eggs? Uh, scrambled, yeah. You want toast with that? Sure. Uh, wheat, white, rye. Uh, you want jam, peanut butter, butter, <laughs> coffee, milk, sugar, decaf, <laughs> right? And so with all these choices, we get paralyzed and we think, oh, I don't want to have to make a decision. You, you just pick it out for me. Uh, and so entering into a monastery can be seen as a way of getting away from the anxiety of having to take responsibility for oneself, right? That's the danger. And in particular, we've seen in the 20th century uh, that obedience to authority can often have very grave consequences if it's blind. Uh, and, uh, so what do we do about that in monastic life? How do we understand obedience in a different way? 
So the first thing I would uh, say is, uh, in terms of the difficulty of blind obedience, uh, one of the problems with it is it doesn't allow leadership to surface in a monastery. So we need leaders for the next generation. It's not enough just to have a, an abbot or a prior right now. If the monastery is going to survive for any length of time, there have to be candidates. Uh, you know, when I'm finished with my time as prior, there have to be guys who can step up and, and take the job after me. Uh, and if, if, if no one else ever gets to make any decisions of any kind, uh, or if, you know, if, the, if obedience is sort of governing in such a way that, that the persons don't have any experience of weighing options or discussing things together in some way, how is a person going to know how to make good decisions? How is one going to become prudent in a way that will allow one to be contributing to the decision-making of the community? Uh, that's, that's one of the real difficulties of blind obedience. Now, on the other hand, at the beginning of religious life, when someone enters, when someone's a novice, um, and this is true in any craft, any line of work, uh, obedience will need to be relatively blind. Okay, what I mean by that is uh, the, the example I like to use that dates me a little bit um, is the movie The Karate Kid. So the, the young guy goes to Mr. Miyagi, who, who's supposedly this great teacher of karate, right? And because he wants to be able to defend himself from his students who are beating him up all the time. And instead of teaching him any karate, the, the Mr. Miyagi says, oh, yeah, I want you to wax my car. Like all day, every day for about five weeks. And not only that, you may only put the wax on this way, and the wipe the wax off this way. You have to do it exactly the way I show you, right? And uh, so the kid is getting really, really angry. He's being taken for a ride by this guy who's supposed to be teaching karate. But it turns out that uh, these motions and, and sort of the pressure of doing the wax and so on uh, teach the, the young boy uh, the, the sorts of defensive hand positions that he needs to be able to use to fight off an attack. Okay, so he doesn't know why he's being taught how to wax a car until later. And, uh, but in fact, uh, this, this may have been the most effective way for him to learn this for reasons that Mr. Miyagi only knows. Uh, that was how he chose to teach him. But there was a kind of blind obedience that was involved at the beginning because the, the student can't know at the outset what sorts of disciplines are going to be needed later. So a more practical example that I would use for my own life, uh, when you teach someone how to sing, I, I used to coach and, and do some, some singing lessons for, for young people. Well, one of the first things you do is, is you separate the voice into different registers, right? So everybody has a high part of their voice and everybody has a low part of their voice. And... Uh, if you want to learn to sing, you first have to learn how to isolate those different registers and practice them separately from the others. Okay? Now, when, uh, when a student is beginning, he or she won't understand why, at least in, in any depth, 
this kind of pedagogy is being used. It's only when you get your first aria, say three or four months into the, the program, and, and uh, now you've got uh, Nason Dorma in front of you and you have to sing it, then you realize, oh, uh, I'm going to have to go from this very... Nason Dorma, Nason Dorma. I have to go from high to low very quickly. And uh, now I, I know how to access that part of my voice without thinking about it because I've been practicing just that part of my voice. Okay? Uh, and suddenly things happen automatically that I've been practicing, but before I actually had to put it into practice, I didn't know why I was practicing that way. So in any craft, the student isn't going to know right away what a good performance is. Uh, a woodworker, uh, you, you'd know this, a woodworker who's learning how to do woodwork doesn't know a good chair from a bad chair right away. It takes some practice to know, like, oh, that's actually a mistake there that I just did. I, I can't identify that without some experience. So a teacher helps me to know how to experience the craft in such a way that I can go from being a beginner to a moderately skilled person to an expert. In the beginning stage, there's, there's a certain amount of blind obedience involved. That's what I'm getting at, right? But we, know, we don't want to stay as beginners. We want to become craftsmen. So, so in that case, we have to learn from the teacher how to distinguish between a good, a well-made chair and not so well-made chair. If we want to learn how to sing, we have to be able to learn and to listen to other singers and say, that was an excellent performance. That performance that I used to think was excellent, well, that guy's actually a crooner. <laughs> right? And, and so it's not really a great performance. Uh, it, it's not the best performance. I don't want to imitate that one. I want to imitate, uh, you know, I want to imitate Jonas Kaufmann rather than... Um, some, somebody else that I just happened to hear. Uh, so, uh, the goal, as I say, is not to be in the dark forever, but to learn how to flourish properly and how to really do the thing uh, that is being asked of me. So what obedience is doing is it's training the monk to be a monk and to think like a monk. And uh, that requires such an undoing of one's old uh, thought patterns that some of the things that are asked are going to be seemingly uh, kind of trivial. So another great Merton quote, he said, you know, the toughest thing to teach a monastic novice is how to sweep a floor. And why is that? Because we all think we know how to sweep a floor. How hard is it to sweep a floor? It's not very hard. But if you're going to sweep a floor like a monk, you might have to do it differently. And it might appear to be silly, the kinds of things that you're put through. Uh, I was talking to a couple of you, couple of you before we started today. Uh, I've been watching Integrate Silence with uh, the guys in Formation, this uh, documentary on the Carthusians. And um, it's very, very beautiful. Uh, they are considered the strictest order in the Western Church. Uh, they talk very infrequently. Um, the, to me, at least, the life looks very, very, very beautiful. But I was commenting to a couple of you before we started, uh, what you don't see is the difficulty of formation. Like the, the, the 
detailed conformity to the rule that the Carthusians demand. You may not rearrange your cell, for example. Uh, you can't move your chair somewhere else. Uh, the cell is, is, the outlay of the cell is given in the rule. Uh, and so obedience means I accept the cell as it is. I don't move anything. Um, you get one meal a day, and you have to eat all of it, <laughs> even if you're not hungry. And you have to do this every day for the rest of your life. Okay? So uh, you have to get used to this. Now, again, this seems kind of trivial. Why, well, why can't we... Why can't I just not eat the apple that's at the end of the meal? Or um, at, we, uh, we actually had a fellow in the community for a short time, uh, before my time, but he had been with the Carthusians. I think they gave like two big jugs of uh, fermented apple cider each day, and he had to drink both of them. And after that, you felt like napping a lot. <laughs> and uh, he didn't finish it one day, and uh, his novice master came to see him and said, you know, um, well, actually, what it was is he, he, he tried to rearrange his cell. And uh, the novice master said, oh, I, I see that you, uh, you moved your desk. And he said, yes, I thought it worked better for me over here. He said, it may work better for you, but it doesn't for us. And if you want to be one of us, you'll keep the desk where it is. Uh, so these things, as I say, appear to be trivial, but the goal is to produce someone who can actually survive the rigors of the Carthusian life, because it's a difficult life uh, to live on one's own most of the day in total silence. Um, psychologically, it's a challenge, and if you're going to do it, there are certain practices you have to know how to implement on your own. Okay, so the novice master is going to train you in very detailed sorts of observances. But it's very much the same in our own monastery. Um, if we're going to clean the kitchen together, and not just the way I used to do it when I lived on my own as a bachelor. Uh, you have to sweep the floor a certain way because there are going to be other people around. There are other things happening around you. And so you have to coordinate what you're doing with the rest of the group. Okay? You can't just do it on your own. So, uh, so this is part of what obedience is doing. Is it's shaping us to be the sort of person that God wants us to be. So whether if it's in the monastery, it's shaping us to be a monk. If it's in a marriage, it's shaping us to be a spouse, a mother, a father, a child. Children ought to be obedient to their parents, right? Uh, if it's in other circumstances, it's to be attentive to God's will for me and to put it into action. So Adam and Eve didn't fully understand why God commanded them not to eat the fruit. Um, and oftentimes when we reflect on this episode, uh, it's, it seems a little unfair that uh, you know God would just sort of put this tree there just because they couldn't eat from it. You know, it seems a little arbitrary. But what if it was the case that actually God it really had intended for them to eat that fruit at the right point when they were ready for it? You know, after certain training, after certain. Uh, becoming after certain maturation, uh, and in fact, we say now that you know the Eucharist, uh, being the the fruit of the tree of life, the the tree of the cross, uh, we do eat from the tree of life now, but but it's because we've been baptized, we've been 
inducted into a set of practices that make us Christian and therefore dispose us to receive the Holy Eucharist properly. Right? So uh, uh, Adam and Eve didn't allow themselves to learn how to be the sorts of persons who could eat this fruit and profit from it. And, and as a result, uh, it brought about a certain distortion of the world, uh, most especially because it, it brought about a certain suspicion of God, you know, of God's intentions. I just get such a, uh, this might sound too, sort of too levitous or something, but uh, Eve's response to the, the serpent, you know, um, A, you know, the, the serpent sort of, uh, doesn't tempt us with obvious falsehoods. They're sort of half-truths, you know. Wait, so God told you you couldn't eat from any, any tree in the garden, right? right? No, no, no. So the rest of the trees are fine. It's just the one tree that we're not supposed to eat of. And it's like Eve can't help herself. She says, uh, we're not even supposed to look at it or touch it, you know? <laughs> Which God didn't say. He didn't say that. And, and the problem there is it indicates a, a, a certain doubt that's entered Eve's mind. You know, wait a minute, why, why didn't God allow us to eat from that tree? And I hadn't really thought about it before because we've been eating from all the other trees, no big deal. But now I'm wondering, you know, are God's commandments really a good idea to follow? You know, it seems like it's a lot of trouble. And, and actually, you know, this... Uh, this uh, Tree will make us wise. Why wouldn't God want us to be wise? What's He hiding from us? You know, um, and I think we do this when we see the the prohibitions that are in the commandments that we're given, because say that the Ten Commandments are largely prohibitory, right? Thou shalt not. You know, we shouldn't kill. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't covet. We shouldn't bear false witness. One gets to wondering, well, why not? You know, what would happen if? Right? What's God keeping from us? Why is it such a bad thing once in a while to say something that's not exactly true? Uh, or what, what, what's wrong with, with you know, wanting something that someone else has? What, what harm is that going to do? Uh, it's that sort of introduction of doubt into uh, wondering whether God's commandments are sort of all they're cracked up to be that uh, opens us to the possibility of deviating from them. Uh, but... Uh, it, it's a lie that outside of those commandments there's something better than what's found inside them. You know, Once we step outside of that relationship with God, then everything is difficult to parse because we don't, our relationship with Him is skewed. And worse than that, we, we become ashamed of ourselves. You know, we don't like to talk to God after we've done something that, that we know is wrong. Right? This is what Adam and Eve do again. They hide themselves. Um, and... Uh, uh, Christ's obedience, he came to carry the cross heedless of the shame. Right? So if we're ashamed of our disobedience, Christ bears that with us. He just inhabits it with us. He says, you know, come after me. Pick up your cross, come after me. It's okay. Uh, God wants to forgive you, wants to restore you. Uh, but it's best then not to disobey and sort of go through the process, you know. Um, it's better if we can obey. So, um, this doubt that's introduced by the serpent and, and the disobedience to which it leads brings about uh, 
uh, and a last important point in my, my sort of preliminary meditation here, and that is uh, what is required in obedience is an act of trust, or as we would put it theologically, the virtue of faith, right? So to believe God's intentions for me are good, no matter how I feel about it or whatever sorts of doubts uh, my thoughts might bring in or the world brings in, uh, however difficult or even impossible some of the things are um, in terms of you know, bridling my own desires, um, living according to the church's teachings, however difficult this is uh, for me at whatever juncture of my life, uh, if I trust that, that God will not will anything but my salvation, my flourishing, our flourishing, the restoration of my relationship with everybody and everything so that everything will speak of God and will be a blessing to me. You know, that's what God has in store for us, but we have to trust him that the way to, to realize that is, is through obedience. There are many things that God is going to ask of us that we aren't going to understand right away. So, you know, I'll just say, like, what are we supposed to do politically in our, in our nation right now? Uh, you know, I've had people ask me that. You know, how are we supposed to respond to this president? Um, well, you know, in part, I can, I can, this is a, a can I can kick down the road a little bit because I'm a, I'm a contemplative monk. I'm not supposed to be paying attention to the news that much. Uh, I, but I honestly, I don't know. I, I think we have to wait and see. Uh, there are lots of uh, very challenging things going on these days. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's not just, I mean, I think for Catholics, it's, it's, it's not at all just since the, the new administration began. I mean, we, you know, let, let's be honest, since Roe versus Wade, we've had, uh, we've been outside the cultural norm. You know, we, we've had pressure to conform to certain understandings about the world that are contrary to our faith. And so, uh, you know, if, if we're in a position of having to, to act wisely and carefully, it's, it's not something new. Uh, but but uh, I think things have gotten radically more unstable in the past six to ten months or so. And as a result of that, uh, we can't really know where the next challenge is going to come from. We have to be ready to do whatever God asks of us. Um, but uh, uh, in the church, you know, there are lots of disagreements in the church right now. What are we supposed to do? Um, probably each of us, there, there's going to be something slightly different asked of each of us, depending on the kinds of relationships we have uh, with others, the, the places we work. Uh, the kinds of work we do, uh, the, uh, the, what else can I say about that? Um, it's, it's a confusing time, but that's okay if we trust God and if we really strive to do his commandments and if we're praying and listening and discerning his will for us. And uh, that's where I'm going to turn in just a moment. So, well, what we, uh, most of us are not, Saints yet. The saints uh, can arise to this personal transparency in which they can see through the knot of, of 
particular circumstances and know what to do. This is one of the things I love about reading the lives of the saints. Um, they seem to have this, this ability to, to know exactly the thing to say <laughs> and to do at any moment. And why is that? That's because the Holy Spirit has completely suffused them with God's will. And so what appears to be very difficult for us because we're still not at that level uh, is not a difficulty for God. You know, our, our situation isn't confusing for him. It is for us. So the, the more we conform ourselves to, to God, the clearer obedience will become and the easier it will be. Easier in the sense of knowing what to do, not in the sense of you know, suffering the consequences for whatever it is that we decide to do. Uh, so, a couple things about obedience in the rule, and then a couple of things about discernment. So, just some more things that uh, St. Benedict has to say. The quickest way to God, he says, is mutual obedience. Okay? So, not only obedience to the abbot, but obedience to what any other monk asks of me. So, some monk comes to me and says, oh, would you help me with this? Um, if I can do it without contradicting the actual uh, command of the superior, then if I can say yes, that's a quick way to God. Just to say yes. Um, this, is what, this is the sort of thing that sounds great the first day or two. <laughs> Until brothers find out, oh yeah, he always says yes. And so I get asked to do everything. Um, but uh, St. Benedict does encourage us to f- be on the lookout for other ways to obey. Not, not just legitimate superiors, but again, to attune myself to others, to strengthen my relationships to others by willing myself to see others' perspectives, to see their burdens and to carry them for them, right? Uh, community decisions are made by the abbots. So this is another, uh, this is partly where we see blind obedience moving toward discernment, discerned obedience. So uh, St. Benedict says when there are important decisions to be made in the monastery, all the brothers should be brought together and each should offer his opinion on what should be done. Okay? But then here's the really interesting thing. Uh, the abbot prays over what he hears and then he decides. And once he decides, all the monks have to obey. And what this means is that the monks have to say, yes to the decision, even if it's not the one I wanted. So for instance, if we have a vote on, um, you know, should we, should we start vigils at 3.15 instead of 3.30? And, and uh, we all go around the circle and, and uh, nine brothers say, yes, yes, let's start at 3.15. And one brother says, no, I really think it's a bad idea. Uh, I think we should keep it at 3.30. And then I say, uh, I've thought about it, we're gonna start at 3.15. The brother who uh, voted against it can't say, well, I voted against it, so I, I, can, I can show up at 3.30. <laughs> you know? Or I can show up at 3.15, but be angry the rest of my life because the decision went against me. Now, I have to internalize it. I have to say, this is my community. This is what God is asking of me. And so, um, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. I, I give myself over to it, however difficult it is. Um, I was very, very impressed by one of our monks from a uh, uh, community in, in Scotland. Uh, he was sent by his abbot to uh, help out in our community in Massachusetts. 
for six months back in 1997 or something like that, I think it was. Maybe it was earlier. It was 94 that they came. Uh, after 17, 18 years, uh, a new abbot came, came into power. He said, I'll, I'll bring you home. So he went home. He was there for two years. Uh, last September, uh, our community in Ghana had an election. And guess who they elected as their prior? Father Bede, who had only been home for two years. So. And uh, I saw him in our general chapter in September. He was all smiles. I knew him when he was in Massachusetts. I saw him there. And uh, he definitely was hoping he'd get to go home someday. You know, he, he, had, he missed his home monastery. So finally he did about, as I say, two or three years ago. He went back to Scotland. And uh, now he's probably, the rest of his life, he's going to be in Ghana. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, what was so edifying about it was that he had embraced this. You know, he had been asked by God to do this. And uh, it's going to be difficult for him. Ghana's not an easy place to live if you're from England. Okay, which uh, he's actually Scottish, so it's, uh, he's even further north. Uh, it's, it's a difficult climate just for, for most Europeans to survive in. Um, but uh, trusting in God, you know, I, I accept this. That this is for my salvation. It's for the salvation of the world. It's for the good of the church. All kinds of reasons to try to make this my own decision. Yes, I want to do this. Um, last part of the rule I want to mention uh, is obedience under impossible circumstances. This might be my favorite chapter of the rule. You know, what do you do when the abbot asks you to do something and it's literally impossible? And we got lots of stories of this in the Desert Fathers. Um, you know, the, there are several versions of the this story where the, uh, the young monk comes to the Abba and says, uh, what should I do to be saved? And the Abba takes a stick and puts it in the ground and says, you water that stick every day. And the water is, you know, three miles down the road. <laughs> so the monk dutifully waters the stick. And um, uh, there are several endings of it. You know, one, the, the stick, even though it's been dead for 10 years, blossoms with flowers. Uh, because of the monk's obedience. Or, an, you know, another version of the story is the, uh, the monk comes back to the Abba and says, okay, I've watered the stick for two years like you asked me to do. The Abba comes out, looks at the stick, grabs it, and throws it away. <laughs> so, you know, what, what's the meaning of these sorts of impossible tasks? You know, why would I be asked to do something um, that, I, that I simply can't do? Um, and uh, St. Benedict's... Uh, teaching in this is, is full of wisdom. Um, he says, uh, you know, first you have to make sure it's really impossible, and it's not that you just don't want to do it. You have to give it your all. You have to really try. And then if it really is the case that, um, you know, so let, here's, here's a better example. Let's just say I, I appoint somebody to be the accountant for the monastery. That's not something everybody can do. Okay. Um, and uh, after three months of of reading books and calling for help of, from professional accountants and doing this and doing that, and working really hard. Uh, the books are just in a total disaster, <laughs> you know. And so, so what does the monk do? So once he realizes that it's it's truly impossible, he's done his best. He's, he's done everything he can to try. 
um, at the right time and humbly he should explain to the abbot why he can't do it. So give reasons. Like, um, uh, so, so what's ruled out is storming into the abbot's office at the earliest convenience and saying, I don't know why you're making me do this. <laughs> this isn't fair. Uh, but, but humbly to go in and say, Father Abbot, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I've done as best as I can what you've asked me to do. But none of the accounts balance for the last five weeks. <laughs> I cannot figure out what the problem is. Uh, and, and I've asked that you appoint someone else to be the accountant, please. Okay. Um, so that's, that's what we're to do. Now here's the amazing part. St. Benedict says, uh, the abbot may still ask you to do it. And then the monk is to trust in God's help. Okay, so always remember that. If it's, under, if it's obedience, it's God asking me to do it. So he must have a reason. Um, I have to still keep trying. <laughs> I can't give up yet. Okay? Um, I can't just stop. You know, I can't just say, well, fine. I'm just won't, I won't do it. I have to keep trying. Um, something is happening in my heart, right? And let's be honest again. I, to me, um, you know, the brothers know I often go back to examples from family life. If you've heard me give homilies, you know I often give examples from what it was like when I was a kid. Um, you know, Surely every marriage comes to some point, or maybe several points along the way, where there's just some issue that there's no agreement on it. And there just doesn't seem to be any way that we can resolve it. It doesn't mean that the marriage is over. It's just that there's, there's some area of life where we don't agree. And, and we don't see eye to eye. And uh, I really think my spouse is wrong. And I can't shake that feeling. You know, what do we do? Do we give up? You know, do we give up? Um, at what point do we say we we give up? No, we keep we keep trying. We 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 try another way. You know, so if I'm again going back to the monk example, if I'm the accountant and I don't know what I'm doing, I call another accountant. I buy another textbook. Uh, I, I add another hour of the day to studying. I go I go back to the beginning and I try to figure out what debits and credits are again. You know, uh, how how the double entry thing works again. Um, you do whatever it takes, you know, because here's the thing: it's our salvation that that this is about. It's not about some small thing, just like balancing the books. It's really about salvation. It's about welcoming God into my life. And who knows? Um, you know, uh, someone like John Vianney, you know, his story. He was either kicked out or threatened to be kicked out of seminary three or four times because the guy just couldn't learn Latin. He couldn't do it. He worked at it and worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. It took him um, something like twice as long to finish his seminary studies as normally was the case. And, of course, uh, his bishop thought, this guy is a total disaster. We're going to put him in the furthest parish where he can do the least amount of harm. And he ends up being such a spiritual genius that they have to build a railroad to his parish because so many people want him as their confessor. 
Okay? So he could have given up at any point. Said, this is impossible. I, I, you know, God doesn't want me to be a priest, obviously. Uh, any of us can give up, you know, at any of these points. But, but if we really see that if God is asking me to do this, and in a monastic relationship of obedience and in a spousal relationship of obedience, we can, we can make that assumption that God is asking this of me. Uh, I need to find a way to make it work. Whatever it is, I need to keep trying. I need to be creative. I need to be persistent. I need to be patient with myself, with the other person. Um, trusting in God's help. Keep at it. <laughs> okay? All right, so last of all for today, uh, a couple things about discernment, and then we're almost out of time. This is a big topic. I needed to make sure I covered it before ablation in May. So, last thing about the, the, the relationship part of it. Um, it's easier to work at an impossible task when we love and honor the person making the decision. Really important, really important. Um, and, uh, you know, so again, uh, let, me, let me give an example from marriage. Uh, again, in most marriages, there's a division of labor when it comes to decision making. Um, one person is going to do the finances, one person is going to do the interior design, one person is going to decide about um, the kid's education, but in dialogue, right? They're, they're going to be, every couple's going to work out these sort of working rules for how to make decisions. Uh, but in the end, one or the other person is going to be the decision maker for, for each decision. Uh, we're, you, can't, you can't vote because uh, if you have a tie vote, someone has to make the decision. So somehow or other, it's decided that one or the other is going to make the decision. Once the decision is made, though, the, the other person has to own it. You know, we, we have to say, that's my decision, too. Because I decided to let him or her have the decision. Therefore, it's my decision. And I have to support it and honor the decision. Um, Thomas Aquinas says that one of the difficulties of the moral life is that every decision is accompanied by a certain amount of anxiety because we can't know how it's going to work out. We don't know the future. Um, and so... Decision-making uh, is, is an anxiety-provoking exercise. Okay? Therefore, those uh, who make decisions for us deserve our honor and respect. Okay? We often like to think, well, we get to pick on them because they make bad decisions. Or at least, see, it didn't work out. I, get to, I got this one over against you because you made a bad decision. Well, but, but what uh, the church would tell us is that Loving, honoring, respecting those in positions of authority is really important uh, to help them be able to evaluate their decisions and make better decisions in the future. So, for instance, uh, in, in my own decision-making in the monastery, it's very hard to tell if a decision is a good decision or not if some or several brothers uh, simply never put it into action. <laughs> you know, if, if brothers, certain groups of brothers don't like a decision and so they don't carry it out, it's hard for me to know whether it was a good decision or not. It's tempting to think it wasn't a good decision because the brothers didn't put it into action, but that's, 
that would be uh, corroborating disobedience. That, that wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, so it requires the brothers to show a certain amount of respect and honor toward the, the person in authority, implement the decision the best they can, you know, the best I can. Um, that's, that's the, we have a vow of obedience. Then the decision maker can look, and, and uh, if we're doing the best we can and it really isn't going anywhere, it's not working, I can say, okay, that was a bad decision, and I learned. But if, it's, if it continues to be murky because there's uh, waffling going on all the, over the place, how can one learn prudence under those circumstances? So this, again, in, in our relationships with persons who have authority over us, whether it be in marriage or in a, a workplace, uh, we owe it to the person making the decisions to try to implement them with the best effort we've got so that they can evaluate them properly and, and that they don't have to suffer the anxiety of wondering if they've made a bad decision just because they've upset other people. <laughs> you know, uh, that, That's not a really legitimate way to discern whether a decision's good just because it bothered me and upset me. Uh, it's a good decision if by putting it into action it produces good results. And we can't know that if it's not ever put into action. Okay, so I think what I'm going to do is, um, uh, since we're we're running short of time. Uh, it's important for me to say something about discernment, but that's actually a big topic, and so let's do that in April. Uh, Father Brendan is going to take a couple of months off. Uh, he will be back uh, in June. So April we'll do dis discernment to together. May will be the oblation for those who've been in formation for a year already. And... Um, and we'll have a reception afterward and just relax together and celebrate. Because uh, I'm, I'm very excited about bringing this newest group uh, to Oblation. And then in June, Father Brendan will continue uh, lecturing on the Church Fathers. You've been very, very patient and, and a great audience. Uh, do you have any questions or anything you'd like to say? <laughs> Since you've heard everything I've had to say so far. Tony. It seems, at least from the outside, mm -hmm. the clarity of the monastic life is a, it's a privilege. So. It is. It really is. Yes. And so what? A privilege. Um, I don't, I struggle, you know, trying to, trying to live a discerning life. Sure, and th that's what I mean by discernment. So, so what has to be exercised in that case is discretion. You know, so uh, to identify the possible courses of action that are before me, and then to know how to listen to find out what it is that God's asking me out of the possible choices. But that, that is something that, uh, and, and that's I mentioned at the beginning that monastic vows and marriage vows function analogously in this way. They offer a certain fixity and clarity about discernment that, that doesn't exist outside of those relationships.
as you know, I've lived a solitary life. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I've just kind of assumed that the teachings of the Church Fathers mm -hmm. and the real St. Benedict and basically the monastic guidance to live are useful for me. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, you know, what we want to be able to do, this is a short introduction to discernment, we certainly want to steep ourselves in the scriptures, in the church's teaching, say the catechism, um, the church fathers, monastic fathers, the rule, all those things, uh, so that we have a, a stock of examples of, of right behavior, uh, of wisdom, prudence, and so on, so that when we're confronted with a situation in life that's that's not clear, we we can do things like ask ourselves, well, you know, what what would Jesus do? You know, what would Saint Benedict do? How would um, you know some someone who I knew who was wise? How would he handle this? You know, um, uh, would this decision contravene any of the commandments in some way? What's the likely outcome going to be? So this is what discernment is. I've got these possibilities. How do I choose? Uh, and, and yes, uh, the, the church fathers will be very helpful in this, teaching us. Yes, Charles. This would seem to argue against making snap decisions or being pressured into, you have to decide right now if they're going to do this. Yes, it is, very much so. Uh, and that's a difficult thing to get away from these days. Um, uh, I, I even find it's the case I, I usually find if I feel like I'm being pushed into a decision it's probably not a good one um, but sometimes there are you know there are always occasions that d demand a, a decision more or less right away and so if we're not going to be caught too much by surprise in those areas we're going to need to cultivate uh, an attentiveness to things you know uh, and, 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 a, and a personal calm, so that when these things happen, we aren't moved by our passions to make a decision, but we can think as quickly and clearly as possible. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. from all over the place. Now, do you have a recommendation in that area? I mean, Butler's is the most famous, but it's very long and paperback might not be too expensive, but uh, uh, that's that's the best, most uh, comprehensive. Uh, Actually, the uh, condition that we really get the table. Yeah. The, 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 the monastic sites, I find that very edifying. Yeah. They're, they're short, very short synopsis Get pages and pages. You get overwhelmed and lost by it. Personally, I find the shorter the better. So maybe, maybe uh, you could write down uh, that we could, when we send our next circular around, we could 
give the publication um, details for that book. Um, so, all right. Um, anything else before we start? Well, I, I hope that uh, Lent is going well for you, and uh, let's be sure to pray for one another during this time. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I have to admit, I, uh, Lent has been going pretty well for me so far, knock on wood. I've been fine. By this time, I'm already sort of pushing against uh, the ascetical <laughs> uh, projects we have in community life. And so far... Um, Perhaps I, I'm my uh, my re the rebellious youngster in me is uh, finally maturing, and I'm not uh, push, uh, kicking against the goad. But uh, I'd appreciate it if you'd pray for our community, and we pray for you every day. So let's uh, conclude with a prayer together. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of this celebration of your Son's resurrection from the dead today. We thank you for the mystery of the transfiguration in which we see our human nature raised up into communion with your divine nature in glory. We ask that it may strengthen us as we continue our Lenten discipline, that we may be able to carry our personal crosses and arrive with joy and with sober joy at the celebration of the Paschal Triduum. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.